and jump now into God's Word. So if you guys wouldn't mind taking your Bibles and opening up to the Gospel of Mark. And we've been, uh, if you're new here, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, taking this great book for the past uh, year or so, uh, looking at what God has been speaking to us and teaching us through this great story of Jesus' life told through the lens of uh, one of Jesus' followers, a guy by the name of Mark. I'm going to read the story to you guys today. It's a story that a lot of you might be familiar with. Um, and I think one of the things that we'll discover today is that the story may not have to do with every single thing that you may have thought that it had originally to do with when you first heard it. But I'm going to read the story, and then uh, we're going to get to work taking a look at it. It starts at verse 41, chapter 12. We'll get into some of the context and the background uh, in just a second here, but uh, let's read it, and then we'll get to work. Verse 41, it says this, And he sat down, it's Jesus, opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and the poor widow came, and, he put, and she put in two small copper coins, which made for a penny. And he called the disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. So out of curiosity, uh, any uh, takers on trying to take a guess as to what this passage of text is actually going to be about, what we're going to be covering. Anybody want to take a guess? Shot in the dark. What are we looking at today? Our lives. That's a great, great answer. Our lives. Uh, anybody want to say Jesus? Jesus. Okay, that's a good one. Our lives, Jesus. Those are good ones. Tithing. Okay, good. What else? Anything else along those lines? Our hearts. Another really good one. Um, all those are true. Okay, the reality is, I think on sort of a cursory reading of this, you would immediately assume that maybe it's about giving money, tithing, uh, giving your money away. And this is one of those passages that oftentimes gets exploited and used as a passage that talks about giving or money in particular, giving money in particular. And uh, one of the things I want to say is I'm going to actually challenge the traditional interpretation of how this passage has oftentimes been looked at. Um, it's one of those passages that I would say in almost every single uh, commentary that I've read, uh, oftentimes takes the spin that this particular passage is actually about uh, giving and that Jesus is giving this nice little story uh, sort of in the middle of a crazy argument about giving. And what I want to try to do is I want to actually push back um, a little bit upon the common or the popular interpretations of that particular idea and actually suggest that in reality it's not about money after all or at all, but it is about giving. But it's not about the type of giving that oftentimes many of us would be led to assume that giving is about. In other words, I'll put it this way. The giver in the story is not who you think. The giver in the story or the emphasis upon the giver in the story is not who you would naturally assume the giver to be in the story based upon typical common interpretations of this passage. So hopefully that'll make sense. What I want to do is uh, I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to get to work taking a look at this passage, and hopefully it'll make sense to you guys as we begin to unpack it, and uh, hopefully it's accurate. And if it's not, then uh, you can write it off, but hopefully it's accurate. All right, Jesus, right now, we need your help. Because God, what we want this morning is we, we need to hear you speak to us in the first place. God, we need your voice. We need your word. God, we need your touch. We need you to give us life. Because God, apart from you, we're dead. Apart from you, we're blind. Apart from you, we're deaf. Apart from you, God, we have nothing. And so we need you here today, Jesus, to just speak to us, to open our eyes, to give us ears to hear, to give us life. 
So we commit this morning in your hands, and we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, first of all, what I want to just kind of jump right in and basically say this, is that just like with anything I ever say, anything you ever hear me say, don't just simply take my word for it. Because really at the end of the day, what I have to say is really not that important. I mean, I'll be straight up front. I mean, I take the gospel seriously. I, I take this book seriously. Um, don't ever take a pastor that seriously. Don't take myself that seriously. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just an instrument. At the end of the day, any pastor, I don't care how many degrees he has after his name or how reverent he is or how much people sort of uh, turn him into a demigod, he's just a human being. We're capable uh, of making mistakes. And so here's what I want to basically emphasize is that don't just simply take my word for it. Let God have the final say. So if I say something that doesn't sync up or line up with God, uh, then just take it back to the scripture and let that be the final say for this. But here's what I want to do. I want to challenge our typical common interpretation of this verse because I feel like what ends up happening is a common, typical, traditional uh, interpretation of this ends up missing the main hero of the story. And as a result of that, sort of lessens the impact of the greatness of God that I think Jesus is trying to bring out in this story. So in other words, the reason why I'm going to push back on this interpretation that we typically have inherited is because I feel like it doesn't give God the ultimate glory that he is intending to unpack for us and unfold for us in this passage. So that's, first of all, my reasoning in trying to push back in this, and hopefully it'll begin to make sense. We'll take a look at three things here this morning. The first thing that we'll take a look at in this passage is we're going to see Jesus condemning false religion. These are three things that I think this passage is actually trying to teach us, and I would even go so far as to say I think it's in this order, in the order of precedence. In other words, the first thing that I think Jesus is really doing in this passage uh, talking about a widow, in the timeline in which he's talking about a widow, is first and foremost to basically condemn the false religion that's in his day. In other words, first and foremost, he's condemning the entire temple system. We'll get to that in a second. The second thing that we'll see is that Jesus actually identifies with the vulnerable by taking up the cause. And then the third thing we'll take a look at is that Jesus actually exemplifies this element of sacrificial giving, that oftentimes the story gets depicted as uh, being a story or a parable about giving. Uh, it, and I would say it is about giving, but I think oftentimes the wrong hero gets raised up in the story, and we end up losing sight of the real hero that I think is supposed to be part of the story. So first of all, we'll jump in, we'll begin to take a look at Jesus condemning false religion. Now, why do I think this is primarily what Jesus is doing? Here's why. And I'm going to give you guys a real quick timeline as to what we've been looking at in the story. Um, and I want to kind of put this whole passage into the context of the Bible. Because here's what oftentimes happens. Is we take little passages of the Bible and we rip them out of their context and then we turn them into nice little moral stories. You, we don't have the luxury of doing that. Um, we can't just simply take stories out of the Bible, rip them from their context and say this is what this is about. When especially if it may contradict what's really going on. So here's, here's what I want to kind of paint a picture for you guys as to what's been happening up until this point and what is going to be happening after this point. So hopefully this will then begin to make a little sense in terms of the context of why Jesus is going to talk a little, about a, uh, a little old lady who gave a lot of money. Really, not a lot of money, but there's a lot in terms of what she had. She gave uh, out of her, her livelihood, not out of her margin. So in other words, first of all, in chapter 11, we see Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is sort of a symbolic way of saying, hey, I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that's come in the lineage of David. 
Second thing that we see in verses uh, 12 to 14 of chapter 11, Jesus curses the fig tree. This is sort of a, a way in which Jesus was sort of symbolically stating what his actions next are going to be doing. What does Jesus do? Well, the next thing that we see uh, in verses 15 and 19 of the same chapter, Jesus goes into the temple, cleanses the temple. Some of us are familiar with this story. This is when Jesus literally goes angry, aggro over all the people and all the goings on in the temple. This is Jesus' way of basically saying this whole system, beginning at the heart, which is what the temple was. The temple was the heart of the entire religious system in Judaism, that this whole temple is under judgment. In other words, it's not doing what God created to do. It's not protecting the people it's intended to protect. It's not leading the people to God that it was intended to lead people to God. In other words, the whole thing is completely broken and therefore is under judgment. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. And then what happens as a result of that, of Jesus' temple action, Jesus gets a lot of uh, negative feedback and kickback upon everything that he does. And what we see now is a series uh, chapter 11 and on through chapter 12 is a series of counterattacks. Uh, this is the entire religious system. And when you read the names that are the people that appear from the priests to the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, scribes, all of these people are basically representing different parties, different groups of people. Some of them are similar, but for the most part, many of them are radically different. But all of them somehow were related or connected to the temple either by way of political interest or by way of financial interest or by way of power type of an interest. All of these people had some sort of connection or relationship to the temple. And when Jesus is coming against the temple, he's not just coming against the temple system, he's actually coming against these guys. So guess who's feeling the heat? All of these people. They're angry. So they turn against Jesus and begin to attack Jesus by way of verbal argument. And then what Jesus does as we then see Jesus in verses uh, 35 to 37 of chapter 12, he then turns against these religious leaders and begins to ask them a series of questions by way of offense, uh, offensive act upon them. And what Jesus does, he tells this little riddle. We looked at it a few weeks ago. It's this riddle of uh, who is David's son, which is sort of an ancient way of saying David uh, is going to have a son, and David's son is going to be the king. And this was the long-awaited promised Messiah that one day God would bring. So in other words, all Jews in Jesus' day were looking forward to a king, a Messiah, that would free them from the oppression. Now you gotta, you got to understand this. It would be like saying, um, in our political world, there are people that are like, we are looking to, for a president that will free us from Obama. Alright, that's what some people are thinking. Uh, four years ago, it was, we're looking for a president that will free us from the Bush dynasty. And what happens in our system, in our world, or even in other countries today, there are people today that are saying, we need a new king that will free us from the effects of Saddam Hussein. Or we are looking for another king that will free us from the effects of the evil tyrant from before. Does that make sense? So the Jews were looking to a king, looking for a king that would one day rise up and free them from the oppressive uh, government of Rome. And in this case, all of them agreed that the future coming king would be the son of David. In other words, it would be the dynasty of David that would continue to go on. But what Jesus tells us in this nice, interesting little riddle or cryptic tale is that, yes, the Messiah, the king, would indeed be David's son, but something more. 
Because not only would he be David's son, he would also be David's Lord. So what Jesus is basically saying is that, hey, I'm the Messiah, and I'm the son of David, and on top of all that, I'm David's God. Come in the flesh. That's what Jesus is saying. And then, okay, we're going to skip to chapter 13, which, by the way, we haven't gotten there yet. We'll get there next week. Jesus, what he does is he predicts the utter destruction of the, temp- of the temple system. And in literally 30 to 35 years, in AD 70, after Jesus died, after Jesus rose again, 30 to 35 years after that, Roman guards would besiege the city of Jerusalem, totally decimate the entire city, and completely uh, dissect stone upon stone the very temple. So if you go to Israel today, I've had the opportunity of going there many times, I've had the opportunity to bring my family there. There's one thing that's eerily absent. There's no temple. It's gone. Absolutely no temple. The very thing that the Jews define themselves by for thousands of years. It's absent. There is no temple. What Jesus is saying throughout the entire chapters 11, 12, and 13 is that the entire system of Judaism is under God's judgment and it will be deconstructed, completely destroyed. It's under God's judgment. So here's what I want to suggest. Why in the world would Jesus, in the middle of this incendiary argument, stop and be like, you know what, let's tell a little story about an old lady who gave a lot of money. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Here's what does make sense. In verse 40 of chapter 12, Jesus got finished telling the story about the scribes. All right, Remember, these are religious leaders in the Jewish system. And Jesus says about the scribes, he says, beware of these people. Watch out for the religious leaders because they're not just simply casual religious leaders feeding you the Bible. These are religious leaders that are carnivorous. They will devour you. In fact, they go so far as that they will actually, in verse 40, devour the houses of widows. This is another way of saying they will go to the most vulnerable of vulnerable in all of society and they will eat them alive. Not physically, but figuratively. And what we see in the very next story is Jesus takes his disciples to the temple and he causes them to observe a widow who is giving everything. And I think this is Jesus' way of saying, let me show you how the system is devouring the most vulnerable. Look at this widow. She's giving everything she has. She is being eaten alive by this wicked system that's under the judgment of God. Primarily, I think Jesus is basically establishing, demonstrating a condemnation against the system that has failed to look out after the, the needs of the most vulnerable in the culture and the society. First of all, that's the first thing. The second thing that I see is that Jesus identifies with the vulnerable. This is very important. That Jesus actually identifies with the vulnerable. And what I mean by that is that he takes up the cause of the vulnerable. One of the things that you'll discover throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, is that God is regularly talking about taking care of and picking up the cause of the most vulnerable. Now, in ancient culture, ancient society, the most vulnerable would be people that are like orphans, children that don't have any dad or mom, a widow. Uh, widow, obviously, is a, a lady that was once married and now she doesn't have a husband. Sometimes she may or may not have an inheritance. But back in that male-dominated culture and that society, that if you were a woman and you had a husband and now your husband's gone, you really have nothing. And to kind of understand the, the essence of 
the sense of uh, social depravity that they would have, you just got to read the book of Ruth. That's the whole story of two ladies that are both widows who had absolutely nothing, and yet God sovereignly becomes a husband to them. In, in other words, that's kind of the picture. So what God readily oftentimes says in the Old Testament is the most vulnerable are people that I care about. So take a look at the next verse, or the next slide, and there's a verse on that I want to read to you. It's out of Deuteronomy chapter 10. In a lot of ways, I think this sort of encapsulates the heart of God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19 says this, that he, that's God, he ensures that orphans and widows, they receive justice, and he shows love to the foreigners. You can read that as immigrant. These are people that don't have a homeland. They're trying to figure out where to live. They're displaced people. Um, they don't have a house, they don't have a place to lay their head, they're displaced. And God says, I take care of the foreigners. I want to make sure that they have a place. I want to make sure that there is a home that they can call their own. And what God says is, I ensure I take care of the orphans, the widows, make sure they have justice, I make sure that the immigrant or the foreigner has a place to live, has food and clothing to be given to them. In verse 19, God says, why? I want you to do the same. So God says, so you too must show love to the foreigners or the immigrant, for you yourselves were once foreigners. So here's what God does, is he sort of paints this picture of, you want to know where my heart's at? You want to know, that, want to know the way that I feel about the orphan or the widow or the immigrant or the outcast or the person that has no money, no resources to take care of themselves? God says, I care for them. I love them. I want to protect them. I want to make sure that they have food if they're hungry. I want to make sure they have water if they're thirsty. I want to make sure they have a pillow to lay their head on at night if they have no home. I want to somehow give them a father if they don't have a father. And I want to take care of them. And God then puts upon his people, the people of Israel, and he says, I want you to do the same. I want you to love the same people that I love. But here's what happens. In the system, especially in Jesus' day, the religious system was not doing that. They weren't loving the widow. They weren't taking care of the orphan. They weren't taking care of the immigrant. In fact, what was happening was the people of Israel basically became closed. They were saying, you know, we don't have any more room in our Bible study for you, so no. We're going to have to shut the door on you because there's no more room at our table for you. We're going to have to tell you no and not allow you to come into our lives, come into our world, come into our system. Or if you're a widow, what we want to do is we want to devour your house because you have an inheritance. We want to basically take over from you. And this is what was happening in Jesus' day. So rather than picking up the cause of the marginalized and the vulnerable, they're actually taking advantage of them. And so what's important for us to understand is that Jesus stops and wants his disciples to identify this poor old lady. Here's another reason why I'm convinced that this is not simply about primarily giving money away and oftentimes being used, hijacked from its context to say, you know, just like this old lady gave, so why don't you give just like her? That in reality what's happening here is Jesus is connecting verse 40 with this religious system that stands under God's judgment to this particular lady that's being devoured by this wicked system because of the person that he chose to observe. I mean, Jesus could have gone to the temple and been like, see that old lady who doesn't happen to be a widow? She's giving money away. Why did Jesus choose a widow? Because in verse 40, he says that the scribes devour the widows. So Jesus takes his disciples and he creates an object lesson. Here's an object lesson. See the old lady, old widow? She's being devoured by the system. And this is Jesus' way of saying, I, I care about this. This isn't just a wrathful, angry God that's looking to pick a fight because he got up on the wrong side of the bed. This is not because God just happens to have this angry 
streak in him that he's wanting to punch someone in the throat. This is a God that actually cares for the vulnerable, the hurting, the broken. Let me ask you, is it okay to get angry? Because sometimes Christians, I think, are a little bit confused in this. Like, no, Christians are supposed to be nice all the time. It's okay to be angry. In fact, one of our problems oftentimes is we don't get angry enough at the right things. We get angry at the wrong things too often. That's part of our sin. We should get angry about injustice. We should get angry when people are taken advantage of. We should get angry when people who are vulnerable are put in places where they're being taken advantage of. One of the things that sometimes I do, I shouldn't do, but sometimes after church on Sunday mornings, I'll go home, I'll take a nap, sometimes I'll lay on the couch, sometimes if I turn on television, sometimes there's this strange, maybe it's a wicked curiosity in me, but I'll turn on Christian television. It's really bad for my spiritual walk with Jesus. Turn it on, I don't know why I turn it on, I shouldn't watch it, I know I shouldn't watch it, I get in the flesh, I get angry, because what I see oftentimes on TV are people that have slick, crazy hairdos, and they're like looking at the camera, looking directly at old ladies, and they oftentimes address the old women in the audience, somewhere at home, living in Florida, living off their estate, saying, look, we need to fund our ministry and make sure that we pay for the fuel for our jet, so if you wouldn't mind giving, donating to this ministry, they end up going poor, and these people get very, very rich. It makes me absolutely angry. There should be things that we get angry at. Most of the time, I'll be really honest with you, my anger has nothing to do with righteousness. There's a lot of times my anger needs to be confessed and dealt with to my wife, to my kids, because it's wrong. But Jesus got angry. He got angry at the right things. And in this case, Jesus gets angry at the fact that injustice is happening to the most vulnerable in culture, in society, in the People that were called or designated by God to take care of the vulnerable were the ones that were exploiting them the most. This is what was happening. But what's amazing to me within and throughout the scripture is what we see is a picture of a God who actually cares and he identifies with the most vulnerable. What we need to understand though is throughout the scripture is that the way that God identifies with them is not through some sort of theoretical or sentimental or emotional identification. In other words, this isn't just simply a God from a distant area looking at people going through tough times and being like, that stinks. It's horrible. I'll send one of my millions of angels to go take care of them. This isn't a God that's like, you know what, I'll like drop gold dust on them just make sure their life gets better. This isn't a God that's just somehow disconnected in a sentimentality towards their plight, towards their difficulty. But the picture that we see in the Bible is a God that actually draws near. And to some degree, we understand the difference of this. We see this all the time. I'll give you an example of this. We know the difference between uh, simply watching a commercial, right, and then, or even seeing the show that we saw here, you know, kids, dirt on their face, and, you know, they get a box, and we're, like, laughing, and we're joyful somehow. We're like, this is awesome. I'm going to be part of this. And we can, you know, give five bucks, ten bucks, or something like that. But really, at the end of the day, um, that's as, as helpful as that may be for them, it's not really causing us to live on any less. I mean, we're not really radically changing our life around. And to some degree, um, it, it's good that we do that. I mean, it's to a large degree, I should say. It's really good that we do that. But the fact of the matter is oftentimes we can watch commercials. We can watch a commercial from World Vision or whatever and see kids in complete destruction or watch the news where kids are being raped or abducted or somehow taken 
uh, from their home at age eight and basically being retrained, reprogrammed to be warriors in Sudan and so on and so forth. And we could get angry at that. We could watch it for like about 30 seconds. And afterwards, we're like, you know what? There's got to be something better on. Flip the channel, watch Seinfeld, and completely forget about the fact of the plight of those that are vulnerable. In other words, we go from this sort of emotional engagement to the very next channel we flip to, we're totally disconnected and completely forgot about it. Here's my point. There are those others that hear the plight of the vulnerable, hear the plight of the orphan, and they want to get involved. And so they rearrange their life, and they figure out a means and a way to somehow get involved and somehow make a difference. And we look at people like that, and we applaud them. We're like, this is amazing. This is one of the reasons, to be quite frank with you, why I think sort of a modern-day Mother Teresa uh, that we would look at and sort of be in awe of and in amazement of it would be someone like, uh, you know, Princess Diana. I mean, she's not that modern-day anymore. But the point of the matter is we look at someone like her and think, here's this amazing woman that had everything. I mean, she's a princess. I mean, she's, she's an heir to a throne. She has everything she can imagine. And yet, at the end of the day, she was a woman that did not have any problem with taking off her crown jewels, getting her hands dirty, and hanging out with a bunch of kids that are broken because she truly, genuinely cared about them, or at least that's the way everything was spun. So here's my point. We sit in awe and amazement of someone like that. We're like, that's awesome. But you know, at the end of the day, as amazing as that is, the picture that we see of Jesus is that all of those people that we oftentimes can look at and be amazed by or in awe of, all of them are really nothing more than distant echoes of the one unifying song that comes out of the gospel. Because really only in Jesus, what we see is just how far God will ultimately go to answer, to plead the cause of the vulnerable, because what we see in Jesus is that he will voluntarily disrobe himself of his glory to make himself vulnerable like the woman and ultimately be devoured like the woman on the cross. Only in Jesus do we see how far God will go. Not just to talk about the plight of the vulnerable. Not just to get emotionally or sentimental about it. Not just somehow think, you know what, I'm going to start giving money towards this. I mean, all of those things are good. Don't in any way misunderstand what I'm saying. But only in Jesus do we see that the steps, the degree to which he was willing to go to take care and to identify with the cause of the weak. And the reality is that the weak and the vulnerable, that's all of us. I mean, all of us, the Bible describes us as being orphans from God, outside of the commonwealth of God's kingdom. To the degree that we see that Jesus has done that, that begins to reshape the way that we think about our God. Not as a distant deity that just is all power and no heart, but it reshapes the way that we begin to see how far our God merges both power and might and compassion and love together. This is what we see in Jesus. So the second thing I wanted, the third thing I should say that I want to look at, final thing I want to really kind of focus on is this, is that what we see with Jesus is that he exemplifies sacrificial giving. Jesus himself actually exemplifies sacrificial giving. So the first thing, again, in this order, I think what this passage is about is it's about Jesus condemning false religion. 
by basically turning to this lady who is being devoured by this evil system. The second thing that I think it's about is that Jesus is identifying with the vulnerable by actually calling attention to this poor lady. But the third thing is I think Jesus is also trying to draw attention to is really how Jesus exemplifies sacrificial giving. Now this gets a little bit complex and I want to hopefully make sense to you guys as we take a look at this. And here's what I mean by this. Is that Jesus is going to highlight this widow who was being devoured while giving everything that she had. That this woman was being devoured while giving everything that she had and that Jesus was highlighting this woman basically as an object lesson ultimately as a means to point to the king who would be devoured while giving everything that he had. This is what I think Jesus is saying. So yes, it's a story about giving, but it's a story about giving in terms of or vicariously through this lady. Let me put it this way. What I think Jesus is doing is something that's not very uncommon for him throughout the rest of his life. It was very common for Jesus to basically look at different people or look at different examples and say, look at this person, look at what they're doing, and basically in that or through that person's example, uh, use it as a means to point to himself. Let me give you an example of that on the last day before Jesus was betrayed. He takes a meal, for example, the bread and the cup, and he says, this bread is my body, which will be broken for you. This cup is my blood, which will be poured out for you. And what Jesus is doing is he's basically giving value to this otherwise just regular bread and regular cup that would have been identified with the Passover meal. And he's saying that this is actually me. And here's what I think Jesus is doing with this lady. Is that this lady becomes exemplary, not because of what she's done, but because she points to the one who does something. She points to Jesus. Her actions point to Jesus. And I think this is essential to understanding this. So I want you to take a look at the next slide. And one of the things I really want to point out is that what happens oftentimes is scriptures like this can be misinterpreted by placing emphasis upon the wrong places. And here's what I mean. When scripture isn't interpreted properly, there's two things that typically happen. We'll look at the first one is this. We end up featuring the wrong heroes. Let me give you an example of the way this typically takes place. This often has happened, by the way, in children's ministries. It's one of the reasons why we've tried to pay special attention in terms of the curriculum that we produce and we give to the kids. Because we don't want kids to simply walk away with nice little pithy, you know, storylines of how to live their lives. We want kids to meet Jesus. And it's absolutely important for us to understand this. But what typically takes place is we have different passages that we look at. Oftentimes we do this with the Old Testament. Here's an example of how this happens. You take a guy like David, for example. Like David, wasn't he an awesome dude? I mean, he wrote the Psalms. He wrote songs to God. What a great guy. I mean, he, he, he was the Old Testament equivalent of a rock star. If, if there's anybody you want to emulate, be like David, right? He wrote songs to God, sang songs to God. He was a great king. He took five stones. He slayed his giants. Be like David. He's an amazing guy. But here's what ends up happening. We simply reduce David's life to nothing more than a moral story of how to be great. Look at David. Be like David. But here's what happens. We conveniently edit out David's sin. Because at the end of the day, we're like, be like David. What part? Adultery? Murder? Or singing songs? Here's my suggestion. David's not the hero of the story at all. What if David is not to be the hero of the story, but because we desperately long for nice little moral stories to kind of live our lives according to, we're desperately grabbing for guys like David's or Jonah's 
People like this were like, oh, we, got it. we need a hero to follow. Let's follow somebody. And I want to suggest to you this is exactly what's happened in this passage. We've taken the sweet old lady, ripped it from the context, and we're like, sweet old lady, give everything she had, go be like the sweet old lady. Is she the hero of the story? No. She's not the hero of the story. I want to suggest to you, when you read your Bibles, make sure you read your Bibles with a proper lens. Make sure you read your Bibles with a lens that everything points to Jesus. Everything. Everything points to Jesus. That God is there in the story. Jesus is the sum total of it all. It's one of the reasons why when Jesus rose again from the dead, he's walking with a handful of his disciples, and they're trying to figure out who Jesus was, and they're all bummed out, and Jesus asks them, don't you know that the Messiah, he had to die, and he had to rise again? And his whole point is that the sum total of the scriptures point to the Messiah, point to Jesus. So when we take our Bibles, and we start searching for heroes that are not Jesus, it ends up leading us to basically the next false thing that ends up happening. Not only do we feature the wrong heroes, but the second thing we take a look at is we end up following the wrong examples. We end up following the wrong examples. So I want to really just try to get down to this and demonstrate to you and show you when we follow the wrong heroes or when we feature the wrong heroes and we follow the wrong examples, let me tell you where this leads you. This basically leads you on one of two camps. The first is that what will end up happening is that you will basically take the life of certain people like this widow who gave everything she had, and you'll read her story and be like, you know, if the preacher's up there, he's like, this woman gave everything. I mean, she gave and it hurt. The preacher kind of manipulates you. He's like looking at you like, look at you guys. You look all nice. You dress in nice clothes. I'm sure you guys all have nice cars. You have a computer. Most of you guys have iPhones. Like certainly you guys can outgive an old lady. And you hear stories like that, and you're like, oh, man. Because I'm not that good of a Christian. Because I'm not doing that good. I'm not giving that generously. And you walk away, and you feel full of despair. This is what typically happens in a lot of churches. Maybe you've been part of that church or part of that system that features the wrong heroes and forces you to follow the wrong examples. And at the end of the day, you look at your life, and you're like, I don't pray enough, I don't witness the gospel enough, I don't read my Bible enough, I don't go to church enough, I'm not giving enough money to the poor, to the church, I'm not serving enough, I'm not able to get involved enough, I'm, I, I must not be that great of a Christian. And you walk around with your head held low because you feel like a failure, you feel like a loser, you feel like you're full of despair because you're comparing yourself with the wrong examples because you're featuring your own heroes. Or... The flip side of this, the other extreme, is them going down this path where you actually deceived yourself into thinking you're doing it. You've actually somehow deceived yourself into thinking, you know, I'm giving away everything I have. And I've met people like this as well that go to this extreme. They're like, I'm going to give it all away. I'm going to become impoverished for Jesus. And what ends up happening is even though you may be living with the poor, even though you may be giving away a lot, even though you may be reading your Bible a lot and praying a lot, involved in the church a lot, and doing a lot with your time, maybe if you don't have a lot of money, you give away a lot of your time. If you don't have a lot of time, you give away a lot of your money. And at the end of the day, you're so self-righteous, 
You look down upon other people that aren't leading as many people to Jesus, and you're arrogant about that. You look at other people that aren't going down the street and doing open-air preaching the way that you are, and you judge them. You look at other people that aren't reading their Bible as much as you are, and you're critical of them. You look at other churches that don't sing with the same amount of passion as you sing, and you are just you're horribly uh, put condescending upon those other people in those other churches. Look, let me put it this way. When you feature the wrong heroes and you follow the wrong examples, it will either lead you to a path of crushing despair or conceited self-righteousness. And to both of you, I want to tell you, both parties, Jesus has come to deliver you of that. He's come to raise up those that are full of despair to give you life. He's come to humble you who are self-arrogant. And somehow think that you have accomplished and you've done great things in the name of God when in reality you've done nothing except condescend upon other people who aren't as great as you. Jesus wants to deliver all of you from those things. All of us from those areas. Look, at the end of the day, there's a tendency in our hearts where we're like, we, we need a hero to follow. It's one of the reasons why our culture, I think, is in this idolatrous love affair with idols. And what I mean by that is like, you know, and again, you, you can pick what you want. You can be like in, enamored with a rock star, all right, or enamored with a TV star, a movie star, or enamored with somebody who has a spotlight on them and think, you know, I want to be like them. I want to be near them. I'm going to follow them. What ends up happening is we take mere humans and we turn them into demigods, and we somehow hope from that mere human, that they will give us peace and comfort and a sense of identity. And what ends up happening is they will always let you down. Because what you're doing is you're projecting on them the credentials that only God can fulfill. You're expecting them to give you hope. Let me just put it this way. If you are a girl, for example, and you have insecurity issues, and you don't know where to find love, and you're trying to find love from a boyfriend or from somebody else, and you're trying desperately to somehow expect to get that from them, please, in the name of God, figure out a way, get counseled, meet with older women that love Jesus, learn how to transfer your needs upon Jesus. Otherwise, what will end up happening is you will put a boyfriend or a husband in a place that only God should be. You will have demands or expectations from that person, and they will never meet you, they will never meet your expectations. You will always be let down. You will always feel sad. And you will pre create a crushing, oppressive weight upon that man. And you will destroy that relationship. The very thing that you want. Because what ends up happening is we turn people in these demigods. And we expect something out of them that they can't deliver. We're looking for heroes. And what ends up happening when we don't make the right hero, the right hero of the story, we will then end up following these false examples that lead us down to a path of further oppression, either of despair or self-righteousness. So where do we go? Because really at the end of the day, I remember, for example, when I was about 18 years old, I, I got really into uh, studying one particular guy. His name was, you know, St. Francis of Assisi. Some of you guys might know who he is. Uh, he was, he was a, uh, a Roman Catholic uh, monk that was well-known for being a very, very rich guy, born in a very rich family, basically gave everything he had, sort of adopted a theology of poverty, 
gave everything he had away over to the poor, and he went around preaching Jesus. And I, and I, I literally read every single thing I could find on him. And there's not a lot of stuff that you can find on him in, in, in a Protestant source. So I actually would go to like these secular sources, or these, uh, sorry, these Catholic sources and find as much stuff I can read. There's a lot of mythology about this guy. But I remember at the end of the day thinking, like, I'm going to be like St. Francis of Assisi. Like, I'm going to give stuff away that I have and just try to live a life of poverty. At the end of the day, what ended up happening to me, and again, it was just me, I became the self-righteous guy. I was looking at people that aren't being willing to give their stuff away. I was looking at people that weren't willing to wake up early in the morning and stay up late at night and go out and preach the gospel and go down and share Jesus with people. I was looking at people that weren't willing to do that and somehow sellouts. I was self-righteous. I needed to be set free. And what I'm trying to suggest to you is this. What if this story is not about the widow at all? What if the story is actually not about you at all? What if the story is actually about Jesus? What if the story is actually a way in which Jesus is telling the story, he's drawing the attention of his disciples upon this widow because of what this widow embodies? There's something about this widow that Jesus says, I want you to notice this about her. Mark tells us that this widow, she gave two pennies, basically, is what it amounted to. Uh, then he ends by saying she gave her very all, her very life. The literal Greek word there, she gave her bios. It's a Greek word. We get the you know, English word biology from. It's the word life. Physical life. This woman gave her physical life all while being devoured by a system that was under judgment. What if what Jesus is saying by drawing the attention in the middle of this very caustic battle with the religious system, by drawing his attention of his disciples to this lady by saying exactly what's happening to this woman who's vulnerable, who's being devoured, but while she's being devoured, she's giving everything she has away. What if what Jesus is saying is that really what she is, she's an echo of about what's to happen to me? Because in less than 48 hours, Jesus himself will be handed over, delivered over to this very same religious system and he would be crushed, he would be tried, he would be crucified, ultimately, for you and I. And if you see Jesus coming into this world, making himself vulnerable so that he could be crushed and oppressed and destroyed and devoured ultimately by death, so that you who are crushed and devoured by death, and destroyed by all sorts of systems in this world, whether religious or secular, or even your own oppression, if you see Jesus doing this for you because he loves you, that he was crushed so that you who are crushed can actually be put back together again. To the degree that you see that, that he's not just a God who's mighty and powerful, but that he is a king who's full of love for you. This changes the way that you view him. And this brings you to a place of trusting him because he's a God who can be trusted. Let me give you an example. Throughout the Old Testament, there was a picture of God that was always viewed as oftentimes being this mighty, powerful being. That was one of the reasons why a lot of times people uh, in our modern world can kind of read the Bible and think that the God in the Old Testament is totally different than the God in the New Testament. I'll give you an example of how this oftentimes happens. Uh, when God revealed himself to Jacob, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Jacob, God revealed himself to Jacob as this powerful wrestler. Remember, Jacob wrestled with God. Uh, when God came to Moses, God revealed himself to Moses in this uh, 
mighty burning bush uh, to Job in his suffering. God comes to Job in his suffering in the form of this massive uh, hurricane. I mean, terrifying hurricane. Uh, to Joshua. Uh, God comes to Joshua as this mighty warrior, mighty powerful warrior, and Joshua is just absolutely floored by the might and the power of this mighty warrior. To Ezekiel, God reveals himself in this crazy, terrifying object of like a burning wheel. You know, scholars still don't even know exactly what it's, it's referring to. In every instance that God reveals himself to his people in the Old Testament, usually it's always this, this picture of might and power and something to be feared. I mean, imagine a hurricane. The power, if you've ever been in the middle of a storm or hurricane, some of you may have felt that earthquake last night. Oftentimes, imagine being in like a 12-point earthquake, something so powerful that absolutely scares you to death. Oftentimes, this is how God would reveal himself to people in the Old Testament. We see God as being terrifying, but in the New Testament, we see God coming, and the question is, how does God reveal himself? And what we see is that God comes in the form of a baby. He's not only terrifying, but we see him as tender. What's more vulnerable than a child, than an infant? What's more prone to being abused and broken and hurt or dropped that's fragile than an infant? What's, what's less scary than a child? I mean, yes, I mean, in a sense, children are scary in their own right. I mean, especially if you've never had one, you're like, ah, I don't know what to do. How do I deal with this? But no one's like frightened of a baby, like, I don't want to touch it. Like, it's going to kill me. No one thinks that. They just, they're afraid they're going to drop it. They're afraid it's so fragile, they're going to break it. Because it's so fragile. This is the picture of your God. Not only terrifying, but incredibly tender. That to the degree that you see God is not only this mighty warrior that's come to condemn and judge the system which abuses the vulnerable, but also as a God who comes and identifies himself with the vulnerable. And what we see on the cross is Jesus not only condemning and judging, not by bringing the judgment upon the evildoers, but by bearing the judgment of the evildoers. Because this isn't just the religious system. Jesus was bearing their wickedness. This is your wickedness and my wickedness. Because how many of us at the end of the day could actually say we've thoroughly, 100%, with all of our might, pleaded the cause of the vulnerable. We haven't done that. All of us stand under the judgment of God. And yet what we see in Christ is he bears this judgment upon himself, but also at the same time identifying with the most vulnerable. To the degree that you see that God did this for you, through Jesus, in Jesus, because he loves you. This changes your heart. This changes the way that you view God. And rather than pushing you away, rather than causing you to feel like you have to run from God or fear this God, this is an image that should draw you near to this God because he loves you. And I want to end with an analogy. I remember hearing this a long time ago. It was actually a picture uh, of a guy by the name of Charles Blondin. Some of you might be familiar with it. I'm going to show you a little picture of it. Uh, when I was a high school student, uh, my high school pastor told this story to our group. And it's actually a real story. You know, sometimes there's pastors tell analogies and they're just stupid because they're like out of a book. They're like canned analogies, right? Um, but this, this was actually a real one. Um, but this, this story, I remember hearing this, it just blew my mind. And I never forgotten it. And maybe that might have the same effect upon you. But there's a guy named Charles Blondin. He lived from 1824 to 1895, 1897. He was a, a tightrope walker, all right? Now, now back in the, those days, you're kind of like, why would people hang around and watch a tightrope walker? Because they didn't have Instagram, all right? 
I didn't have Facebook. They didn't have cable television. So they're really bored and they're trying to figure out stuff to do. So what they would do is go hang out on bridges and watch guys walk on a tightrope. So that's what, they have, that's what they did back then. But this guy apparently was the best in the entire world. And this guy had to basically prove how great he would. He, he would go out there. He'd kind of push wheelbarrows out there. And he'd like fry an egg out there on this like stove that he walked out there. And he would do flips and jumps and all these things. And people were like, this guy's the best of the best in the entire world. And, uh, you know, every day he would kind of gather these big, large crowds and always kind of need to outdo himself because, you know, some guy like this, you don't want to do the same tricks. People get bored. So finally what Charles Blondin wanted to do is he wanted to basically prove how great he was and sort of outdo all of his other former tricks by saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to carry someone across on my shoulders. I'll show you how great I am. Carry someone across on my shoulders. And so what he did, um, a few days prior, he kind of ran an ad in the local newspaper saying, if, if you believe I'm great, believe I'm the best type of walker in the world, um, and you would like to be a part of my trick, um, sign up. And so there's you know, several you know, hundred people that would sign up for this specific thing. They would interview them, want to make sure that you know, people weren't like largely obese and all that. Um, they didn't, you know, wanted to make sure that everything kind of worked out well on his trick. And so what would end up happening is on the particular day that he was going to do this, he gathered together, there was several, said you know, upwards of 100,000 people gathered around on bridges, sitting on the side, watching Charles Blonde do this. And it was said that Charles Blonde shouted out to the crowd, how many believe that I'm the greatest type of walker in the world? People were like, raise your hand, shout, They're like, we believe you're the best. And finally he's like, how many of you think I'm the best and would be willing to be the one to get on my shoulders and let me carry you across? Total silence, right? Just like they would be here. He'd be like, okay, you're the greatest from a distance, right? I admire you, but I will never give my life to you, right? That's the picture. So Charles Blondin, finally, no one, no takers volunteered. So he ended up taking his, his, his manager, his road manager, on his back, walking across. The gospel is a picture of a God who is great and powerful and mighty in far insurmountable ways as Charles Blondin who went to the greatest length and depths to prove and demonstrate his love for you. Because some of us in this room are like, God, show me your love. God, if you love me, then you'll get me a husband. God, if you love me, you'll somehow take care of my needs. God, if you love me, you'll pay my bills. What God is saying, I've demonstrated the greatest depth of my love for you in that while I was on the cross, I became vulnerable in your vulnerability. I was crushed by the same crushing weight that crushes you. I did this for you because I love you. I lost control. I gave everything I have, my very life, for you. This is exactly what Paul the Apostle would say. In Christ's death, we see the greatest expression of God's love. To the degree that you believe this, it would give you the confidence to mount yourself up on him and let him carry you. Someone said, while he was carrying his road manager across the type rope, um, the guy that he was carrying would sometimes counter, counterbalance and try to rebalance, you know, and he kind of feel him shifting while he's on his shoulders. And it was said that Charles Blonde said something to the effect, uh, shouting up at him, um, I need you to become completely one with me. Your body needs to become one with my body on this type rope because if you move, you will not only lose yourself, but you'll lose me. We will both go down together. In other words, what Charles Blondin was saying, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. <laughs> but if you lose your life, if you trust me, you'll be saved. 
Some of you might be like, you know, carry the analogy to the fullest degree because be like, if Charles Blondin fell, right? I mean, if the dude fell and made him lose his balance and Charles Blondin and him both fell, then it'd be over for both of them. But you can push this to the fullest extreme and say, what about Jesus? If I fall, will Jesus fall? And the reason why we know for sure that Jesus can't plunge to the depths because he has already plunged in the depths. The depths that you deserve. To the degree that you see, he plunged himself voluntarily into the depths of a system that devoured him because he loves you. This changes the way that you see your life. You see your life as one that's so loved by a God who created you. He's not just a God that's distant. He's not just a God that sees your plight and sees your vulnerability and says nice things about people that are going through hard times. He's a God that says, I will come into their life. I will make myself vulnerable on their account. I will allow myself to be devoured by the very same things that devoured them in degrees that they've never even dreamed of or experienced so that those who are devoured can be put back together again. So that those who deserve the judgment of God will actually be given the righteousness of God in me. To the degree that you see that Jesus did this for you, not only because he's powerful, but because he's incredibly loving, this will rewire in your heart what you love and what you devote yourself to. And you know what type of person this changes you into? This changes you into an incredibly giving person. You actually end up becoming giving. So you see your life your time, your energy, your money, everything you have is being purchased, given to you by a God who loves you. And you're not bound by it anymore. You're not using money. You're not using people to somehow leverage popularity from other people to the degree that you see that this God loves you because he simply loves you. And he demonstrated that love on the cross by being devoured. That changes you. You'll be set free. You'll be given life. I'm going to finish. We're going to sing a song or two. And if you'd like, you can partake of communion. And I want to invite you to worship this God who loves you. We have some rugs up in the front here. If you'd like to just kind of get on your hands and knees before Jesus, some of you want to do that. You just want to express your love to him on your faces before him. That's what we have these here for. We want to invite you to just bring to this God who loves you your sin by way of confession, to bring to this God your anxieties, those things that hold your heart, that weigh you down, that oppress you, because this God loves you. You can partake of communion and be drawn in. He invites you. He loves you. I'm going to pray, pray over us. In fact, how about we all stand, and we'll just kind of finish this up by singing and worshiping, confessing sin, calling upon him because he's a big God. He's a great God. He loves us. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he accomplished for us on the cross. And God, in this time right now, we just want to surrender our hearts, our anxieties, our sin, our fears, our anger. That is misplaced anger. We want to surrender even our loves, those things that we love perhaps even more than you. We want to lay all these things down before you trust you and trust our lives on your shoulders in your arms because you're a God that's qualified to carry us